Hello and welcome to episode number 170 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor for the Northern Miner. I also help take care of social media and also help host this podcast. Yeah, lots going on as usual. We have Palladium hitting new all-time highs. It is, I think we can call it officially parabolic. We have been talking about Palladium for a couple of months now and it's accelerating the rise. So we're going to cover that in the metal section and we're going to see just how extreme that is and also we have a fantastic inspiring uh, profile and speech of P. Jerry Ass that took place at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. A Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro was the MC. It's a pretty inspiring story of how the mining industry can help communities. Uh, P. Jerry Asp is from the Talton Nation. It's quite a moving speech by the end of it where you really just, the numbers, there's always these huge numbers. It sounds extreme, but I, I believe it. Uh, at the Talton Nation, according to P. Jerry Asp, before the mining industry got involved and he was instrumental in that, the unemployment was at 98%. So a pretty desperate situation. And at the end of it, it was at 0%. Now, that's amazing. And these are the kinds of stories that really, I think the mining industry needs to tell. And that's what they're doing. I mean, they put it at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. It's first up was P. Jerry Asp. And yeah, that's the kind of story the, the industry needs to tell itself and the world because it's not all bad. You know, it's not a perfect industry, but when you help people get jobs and make money and create a sense of independence, those are nice stories. It's a very inspiring story. So P. Jerry Asp, this is a story for mining people, and this is a story for, I think, Canadians, and I think this is a story for the general global public. I think it demonstrates that a lot of things in this world are not black and white. Some people might think that Aboriginal communities that live off the land would be necessarily opposed to the mining industry and the resource industry. And that does come up a little bit in the story, but ultimately they partnered together and they accomplished a mutually beneficial relationship that exists to this day. And the Talton Nation is doing fantastic. And in a sense, like a, the leader, he's spoken at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. We've had him twice. Yeah, so the Talton First Nation, there's a lot to pay attention to in uh, their story and what they've done. And again, to me, it shows that there's a lot of shades of gray out there and that mining industry equal bad is too simple. Now, this is a simple view. And I think this gives incontrovertible evidence of that. So feel free to disagree. I'm still working on getting us our email. I'm reminding myself as we speak, we're gonna get an email set up here right away. So feel free to disagree. Uh, feel free to leave comments on our on the Northern Miner or on our SoundCloud. As well, you can find all the videos for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame on, on their YouTube channel. We've retweeted that. They're at CDNMHF, which stands for Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. I've recently just retweeted their link to their YouTube video with the entire evening 
We're just going to do a little bit piecemeal just because uh, for the sake of time and just to give you guys the maximum content for your time. That's all coming up. You can find us online at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And also this podcast is available basically wherever podcasts are sold. So Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, we're on YouTube, we're doing it all. So welcome aboard. And finally, before we get into our news stories, I just want to say we have a booth at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. It is booth 1130 at Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Say hi to Michael and Joe. They're our sales guys. Not sure if Anthony's out there. He might be there too. So stop by the booth. Say hi. We're giving out complimentary copies of the Northern Miner and the Canadian Mining Journal, a sister publication, and all sorts of other little goodies. So stop by. We have a ton of different advertising opportunities, and we have more sponsors coming up in this podcast not this one specifically but coming up in the coming weeks so we're very excited about that so stop by booth 1130 at the vancouver resource investment conference and turning to the website we have an interesting move in the fertilizer market we have a headline anglo-american bets on fertilizers with 527 million dollar purchase of sirius minerals sirius minerals is a British Jr. with a huge fertilizer mine beneath a national park. So I guess that's not a huge issue, the national park. The reason Sirius needed basically, they ran into financial problems and they needed help because their their billion dollar backer backed out. And so Anglo-American, who's been trying to diversify out of coal, they decided to take the leap. And so they're betting on the fertilizer market. So an interesting move. Let's just look at a few lines here. Sirius, it's pretty cheap stock. It's it's a penny stock. As part of the deal, Sirius shareholders will receive 5.5 pence per share in cash, which is a 34% premium on the closing price on January 7th, which was the day before Anglo confirmed it was in the talks to buy the mine developer. And the offer values Sirius at 400 million pounds, one-third more than the targeted company's market value by the time it was presented. The firm, however, was worth more than 1.8 billion pounds 18 months ago before its funding plans failed. Just wanted to touch on that. Nobody's talking about fertilizer recently. In a sense, it's we might think of it as a counter-cyclical move. We have a commentary from mining analyst Ed Sterk from BMO Capital Markets, and he says, quote, this would certainly be a counter-cyclical investment for the fertilizer market, but given the extremely long mine life, this may present an interesting opportunity in a, quote, green commodity over the long term. BMO expects the potash to remain in oversupply until 2027, meaning that the near-term take-up of what it calls a commercially unproven alternative may be limited. There seems to be no shortage of potash. This would be a very long-term move. You know, just explain the size. We have Humphrey Knight, a senior potash analyst at CRU. He considers Anglo's move risky and, quote, serious planned production is about 30 times larger than the total polyhalite market size in 2018. The company's plan to rapidly increase production to over 10 million tons only a few years after starting operations would add to concerns of significant disruption to wider fertilizer markets. 
even with its numerous offtake agreement. Knight told Mining.com in September. Yeah, so just an interesting kind of move out of nowhere. Nobody's talking about fertilizer. All of a sudden there's a big purchase. So sometimes that's a sign of a turn and sometimes not. So that's what's going on with Anglo-American. What else do we have? We have TMAC is launching a strategic review of its Hope Bay Nunavut project. And I want to touch on this because there are a couple of larger companies involved, such as Newmont and Resource Capital Funds, both together own 58.5% of TMAC's shares. And it sounds like they're losing patience with the project. This is by Trish Saywell. Production in the fourth quarter at TMAC Resources struggling Hope Bay Mine in Nunavut were at the low end of expectations, and the company has begun a strategic review process. The deferral of mining in the BTD East Limb due to rehabilitation work, which impacted available grade, was the biggest factor in the company's weak quarterly production results of 24,650 ounces gold. Disappointing plant throughput brought down the average for the quarter and was mainly due to planned maintenance on the power generator, which meant that the company could run only one of two concentrator lines for a 14-day period. And so they have begun a strategic review. And the CEO, Jason Neal of TMAC, says that we have been making operational performance improvements since construction was completed although we have not reached our targets. So I just wanted to touch on this because we've been talking a little bit about Newmont. And so this is another angle on what a mega cap like Newmont is up to. And when this sort of smaller thing in Nunavut starts to underperform, they're starting to ask some tough questions, I think. And so now uh, they are doing a strategic review. Just finally on this story, Barry Allen of Laurentian Bank Securities speculates in a research note that the announcement of the strategic review signals that RCF and Newmont, the company's two key shareholders, quote, may have become uncomfortable funding the company further and are seeking assistance with the prospect of achieving a stable level of operations that provides sufficient working capital for the annual sea lift. $40 million of seasonal working capital expenditures in Q3 and ongoing mine development. Sounds like it's expensive uh, to run this thing. I mean, Nunavut and, you know, Yukon, Northwest Territories, they've always been a little bit trickier to run your mine out of. Like, just the fact that you have to make a sea lift must raise questions at Newmont headquarters. And on the battery metals front, we have a prediction from ARK Investment Management that EV sales are going to hit $37 million by 2024. This is six times higher than the roughly 6.5 million units forecast by other agencies, including the Energy Industry Administration. So ARK, who's based out of New York, they are very bullish on electric vehicles. Again, they think 37 million units will be on the road in 2024, about six times higher than the 6.5 million units forecast by other agencies. I guess ARK which focuses on disruptive technologies, said EV sales in 2019 hit about 2 million units, up from 1.45 million units in 2018. You know, that's not bad. I am not an expert in these things, but my impression is if you get 16 million, say, auto sales in the U.S., that is a really good year. And if they're making 2 million units maybe, I don't know, I assume this is globally, that's a pretty significant amount. This reminds me of the diamond story, which is coming up next. Uh, 5% of uh, lab-made diamonds is not insignificant. So here we are, but first things first. So they're sold 2 million 
units in 2019. Now, EV sales are expected to grow significantly during the next five years. ARK says in a research note, despite, quote, an estimated 3.1 million drop in total auto sales worldwide last year, it should be robust over time as EV adoption gains traction. And I think this is the maybe the most interesting and crucial part. I mean, anybody can predict anything. That's not necessarily big news, but their rationale kind of makes it pretty interesting. The co- they say that the cost of battery cells for EVs will continue to fall. And I think this is the heart of the matter. Quote, according to Wright's law, for every cumulative doubling of units produced, battery cell costs will fall by 18%. Sounds like a variation of Moore's law. So this is Wright's law. So we're learning new things every day here on each podcast. And continuing, these cost declines are critical to reaching price parity with gas-powered vehicles, as the largest cost component of an EV is its battery. That's pretty interesting. So you can read more about that online. Uh, It sounds like they think that the costs of the batteries are going to drop significantly enough where all of a sudden the scales are going to tip and people are going to start thinking of EVs before gas. So that is it. And just finally on that, for ARK, the biggest risk to their forecast coming true is whether or not traditional automakers will be able to scale EV production. So for them, the risk is that they won't be able to make enough cars. Isn't that interesting? So that is EV sales to hit 37 million by 2024, ARK says. And next up, we have Rio Tinto to close world's biggest diamond mine. Here is the diamond story again. Let's see if we can discern why. Let's look at the official reasons. Let's speculate a little bit as we all love the diamond story over here at the Northern Miner podcast. So this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. She's from mining.com, a sister publication. Rio Tinto's iconic Argyle mine in remote Western Australia, the world's biggest and the main global source of high quality pink diamonds, will close in the fourth quarter of this year, potentially pushing prices up and spurring exploration. The planned closure, the company said, will impact its total diamond output for the year. Rio now expects to produce between 12 and 14 million carats of rough diamonds in 2020, down from 17 million carats it turned out last year. The impact on Rio's balance sheet, however, will be minimal. Diamonds bring only about 2% of earnings, while iron ore, the company's main commodity, accounts for almost 60%. Pink diamonds, already rare, are about to get scarcer, as Argyle accounts for 90% of worldwide production of the colored precious rock. The mine has yielded more than 865 million carats of rough diamonds since it opened in 1983, and so far there haven't been any major discoveries of projects of Argyle scale that have come online. At its peak, the mine produced 40% of world diamond output by volume. It still accounts for all of Australia's diamond production. So yeah, analysts and auctioneers alike expect prices for the unique diamonds to go up. Pink stones have already been fetching record prices in the past few months, and the closure of their mine source could see that trend strengthen. In 2018, the 18.96 carat pink legacy gold sold for US $50 million at Christie's Auction House, breaking the world record price for price paid per carat for a pink diamond at auction. I don't know. The pink diamond market sounds pretty healthy. And it's another interesting little note just at the end here. The mining giant said decommissioning and dismantling the mine would take five years, after which it would monitor the site for a period to be defined. 
So they're not just like shuttering this thing to see if it'll help prices go up. It sounds like they're just closing this thing. It's going to take five years to shut down. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, Rio Tinto to close the world's biggest diamond mine. That'll be very interesting to see how that affects the market, if at all. One would think it would. Just because the nicest pink diamonds are selling for world record prices doesn't mean the general market is doing well. And that we don't know of from this article. So I think we just file this under stories of note in the diamond industry, and maybe we return back and have a clearer picture at some point uh, from a purely distant, objective, non-contextual point of view. The world's biggest diamond mine is closing. So that's significant. What it means is less clear. So let's just file this on stories of note. Australian rare earth spider Linus is facing an environmental lawsuit in Malaysia. And here it says that uh, Australian rare earth spider Linus said Friday that three individuals in Malaysia had filed a lawsuit challenging the government's decision to renew the company's operating license last year. The miner, the world's only major producer of rare earths outside of China, isn't the only one being sued. Other targeted people include the Prime Minister of Malaysia, 27 other ministers and cabinet members, the government of Malaysia, and the Atomic Energy Licensing Board, Linus said. I guess Linus is releasing this information because if all these people are being sued, well, maybe this person just hates rare earths under any circumstances, but let's continue reading here. The court case questions the processes followed by the government in reaching its August decision to allow the miner to continue operating in the country under certain conditions, including identifying a Malaysia-approved site for a permanent disposal of the waste Linus generates at its plant. Well, it's kind of understandable if you live in that neighborhood that you don't want Linus's toxic waste being dumped in your backyard. It's classic, not in my backyard type stuff, uh, but who wants that in their backyard? The Sydney-based miner agreed to start extracting low-level radioactivity from the ore mined at its Mount Weld operation before shipping it to Malaysia for final treatment. And I guess that's not enough for these three people bringing the lawsuit and probably a lot of citizens. The cracking and leaching plant to be built this year in Kalgoorlie, Australia, will perform the first step of concentrate processing in 2021. The facility is expected to be completed in late 2022 or early 2023. And Linus said at the time it planned to explore opportunities for the next stage of rare earth processing in Western Australia. The company, which controls just over 10% of the global rare earths market, has also revealed plans to build a separation plant in the United States. And we touched on that in an earlier show. And just on that facility, the facility would be the world's only large-scale producer of separated medium and heavy rare earth products outside of China, which currently accounts for 70% of global production. Beijing also controls 90% of a $4 billion global market for materials used in magnets and motors that power phones, wind turbines, electric vehicles and military devices yeah so the court case is on january 21st which is actually the day we're recording this podcast watch this space stay tuned for what will happen next on that one finally just quickly i just wanted to touch on another couple of stories the rising civil unrest adds to mining risks in 2020 this is just a report by risk consultancy V-Risk Maplecroft. Their civil unrest index is 
rising. The experts foresee as many as 75 countries having to deal with soaring public rage over a variety of topics, including economic inequality and political roguery during the next six months. Other jurisdictions, such as Hong Kong and China, which saw the greatest increases in risk over the last year, are unlikely to improve over the next two years, V-Risk Maplecroft predicts. As a result, the number of extremely risky countries in the civil unrest index jumped by 66.7% from 12 in 2019 to 20 by early 2020. Okay, so there's about eight more countries that are entered the extremely risky countries category. And just to define that, an extreme risk rating in the index, which measures the risk to business, reflects the highest possible threat of transport disruption, damage to company assets, and physical risk to employees from violent unrest. The resulting disruption to business, national economies, and investment worldwide has totaled in the billions of U.S. dollars, the consultancy says, citing Chile as an example. The first month of unrest in the copper-rich country caused an estimated $4.6 billion worth of infrastructure damage and cost the Chilean economy around $3 billion, or 1.1% of GDP. Okay, so you can read more on that on thenorthernminer.com. And finally, I just wanted to touch on I Am Gold. Stephen Letwin is to retire. He announced that. The company is sort of missed some gold production miss, and he announced his retirement. Is it related? Who knows? I, I interviewed Steve Letwin for the TNM Leaders. We haven't released that yet. Uh, he's a very nice, well-read guy. He, we were talking about Winston Churchill and his love of those books that Winston Churchill wrote. So Steve Letwin is a really interesting guy. It'll be interesting to see what he does next, and we wish him the best. So yeah, however, the company uh, did have a miss. The output fell short of IM Gold's target for the year. Attributable gold production last year reached 726,000 ounces of gold compared to 765 to 810,000 ounces the company expected. So about 40 to 85,000 ounces less than it expected. Fourth quarter output totaled 192,000 ounces. So with that, that wraps up our news stories, and let's take a look at metal prices. And at long last, we are turning to metal prices. And if you would like to get this information and follow, say, the palladium price on a daily basis or even more often, you can just go to infomind.com. And if you put that into Google, infomind and metal prices, you will find this page. And on January 21st, we have gold at $1,556.13 per ounce. That is $12 higher than last week. Silver is at $18.01 per ounce, and that is $0.22 cents higher than last week. Platinum has broken $1,000 to $1,012.35. That is $43 higher than last week. So that's at the top range of Jeffrey Christian's prediction. And you have to wonder if palladium is taking platinum a little bit along for the ride here. Who knows? Because palladium is at $2,479.76. That is 
$329 higher than last week. You're seeing a dramatic increase in the price on our weekly level here. If you look at the chart, it does look like it's going parabolic. You always have to be careful. I mean, I remember seeing Jim Rogers once uh, being interviewed when silver was going up to $50 an ounce. And he said, well, whenever things go parabolic, they crash. And that is what happened with silver. So let's see. It's always great to compare the data with the story. Uh, Jim Rogers has a lot of experience, and it's a really interesting and kind of logical story that parabolic moves lead to crashes. Let's see what happens with palladium. It's very exciting to watch. We love the drama. Thank you, palladium. And moving on, copper, our industrial metals, on January 17th is at $2.85 per pound. That's six cents higher than last week. Aluminum is at 81 cents, which is one cent higher than last week. Lead is at 90 cents per pound, which is three cents higher than last week. Nickel is at $6.28. That is nine cents lower than last week. Tin has jumped a bit to $8.06 per pound. That is 18 cents higher than last week. For all our quotes of tin, it's always had a $7 handle on the front, and now it's broken up to $8.06. So a little bit remarkable with tin there. Let's see if it holds. Cobalt is at $14.52. That is 22 cents lower than last week's quote. And zinc is also doing well at $1.10. That's two cents higher than last week, but on the upper side of its trading range. So very interesting moves in the metal markets. And coming up, we have P. Jerry Asp and his induction at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame this January 9th in Toronto. He is introduced first by Anthony Vaccaro, and then you get a presentation. And then Glenn Nolan uh, from Norant Resources gives a small introduction and presents the award. And then Jerry Asp gives a speech. And just a quick little bit of biographical information on P. Jerry Asp. He's one of Western Canada's most prominent Indigenous leaders and a tireless advocate for the inclusion of Indigenous peoples in the mining industry. His leadership skills came to the fore in the 1980s during a mineral exploration and mining boom in the Golden Triangle of Northwest British Columbia. Asp has focused on building bridges of understanding between the mining sector and Indigenous peoples and challenging misconceptions that hinder the reconciliation process. He has received many awards for his trailblazing role. In 2011, he was recipient of PDAC's prestigious Skookum Jim Award for his exceptional achievements and the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2013. So enjoy the speech and we will see you on the other side. It's time to induct four extraordinary individuals. This is what we're all here for. And our first inductee this evening is Jerry Asp. Please take a moment to listen to his video. Jerry Asp is a man who wears many hats, literally and figuratively. His collection contains gifts that remind him of the friendships he has developed over decades of connecting Indigenous communities 
mining companies, and governments. You know, I think that what Jerry has done for the industry and for Indigenous people is he led by example. He was a real trailblazer. He showed that they and us, we can actually work in this industry in a meaningful way, contribute in a meaningful way, and uh, build those bridges between the two different cultures. Jerry is a very rare kind of leader. He is a leader that gives everything he has for the well-being of people. Um, his mission in life is to help and to serve and to bring well-being uh, to his nation and to all Indigenous people. Jerry's inherent talents as a leader, educator, and entrepreneur come from his deep family roots. My grandfather, George Zerza, was the last true hereditary chief of the Teltan people. Family was important, hard work was important, and education was important. My grandfather, Asp, was also from Sweden. He jumped ship in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, worked his way up through the logging camps in Wisconsin, learned to speak English, and then came west looking for gold up in the Stikine. Met my grandmother in 1919. They were married in 1920. In 1921, they moved to Porter's Landing. In 1947, when the town went up for sale, he bought the whole town. So we own the town of Porter's Landing. So that's the kind of background I came from. Born in 1948, Jerry grew up in the north, a member of the Taltan Nation, and would go on to become chief of the Taltan Band. But his career started in mining. Well, I'm sure it was mining because it was the bush life. I liked to be out in the bush and I was big and strong and they, that's what they wanted. They wanted big, strong guys. They could work and uh, teach them how to do things in mining underground as well as on surface, the diamond drills. Jerry went from dishwasher in the kitchen to working on diamond drills and underground. After seven years with the Tantalus Butte coal mine, Jerry changed directions, going back to school to study contracting and project management. In 1985, Jerry suggested the community take on building their own houses at Telegraph Creek. As a result, the Teltan Nation Development Corporation was born. By 1988, they started their first project for the mining industry at the Golden Bear Mine. So we negotiated an agreement. We did a joint venture with Artie Construction to do the 160-kilometer road. And within three weeks, I bought $3 million worth of equipment. And heavy equipment operation was underway. The Teltan Nation Development Corporation is still going strong and has expanded, supporting many areas of mine operations from camp catering to IT services. Jerry is dedicated to his community and is credited with leading his nation out of poverty to full employment. When we started the Teltan Nation Development Corporation, we had 98% unemployment in the winter and 65% in the summer. And in 2006, we had zero unemployment in the summer and 5% in the winter. And even today, we have no unemployment in our nation. Jerry also wants the young people of the Taltan Nation exposed to all possible educational opportunities. They have embraced that challenge. Last year, in fact, we graduated 48 people from accredited schools, either grade 12 universities or accredited training programs. So we're probably among the national average now for grade 12 graduates. When we started, we were lucky to have one or two in the whole nation. He is now happy to pass the torch. You know, he let go of his power in order to allow the next generation to be able to learn and to grow and to thrive from those successes and to make their own successes. 
Jerry also helped create the award-winning Aboriginal Toolkit, which helps Indigenous communities understand the mining industry. He's introduced mining in a way that provides real information to the First Nation communities and the Indigenous communities across the country of what mining means and how they can become part of projects and uh, what they ask for when industry is in their territory. Jerry was key in negotiating the first impact benefit agreement in British Columbia and established a number of organizations to help educate and connect people. Based in Whitehorse and now in his 70s, Jerry is still traveling the world with his latest venture, the Global Indigenous Development Trust. We go down to places like Peru, Belize, Colombia, We've been down in Ecuador, and we're working in Canada on some of the places, helping to get the local indigenous populations to understand mining. He's an incredible visionary. He can see and hold a vision for who we are and where we need to go. He understands how to bring people together in a way that I haven't seen anyone else be able to do before. Just the most decent person you'll ever meet. Literally everything he does is for the betterment of people. Period, full stop. Here to present the award to Jerry Yasp is Glenn Nolan, Vice President of Government Affairs for Norant Resources and Hall of Fame Director. Glenn. Thank you, Anthony. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs. It is an absolute honor to present this award to one of Canada's most prominent Indigenous leaders and a true friend of mine. Jerry has always focused on building bridges between the mining sector and Indigenous communities. It's a goal that both of us share. And I am pleased to present this award to Chief Jerry Asp. Please join us at the podium, Jerry. Gotta put my cheaters on. Well, thank you, Glenn. That's the second time he's given me an award. And really, I can't wait to see what the next one you'll give me. I'd like to start by saying that I'm very humbled and deeply honored to be inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Believe you me, this is an honor that I don't take lightly. There's no saying that goes like this. If you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you can be sure that it helped getting up there. So like the turtle, I'd like to thank a few people who helped me reach this goal up here. First, I'd like to thank my wife, Ida. We've been together for 52 years. We have four children. <clears throat> Thelma, Geraldine, Cynthia, and Arthur, they're all here tonight. We have eight grandchildren, two of them are here tonight, and we have six great-grandchildren. I'd like to thank them because they made me realize that a man with a wife and children had responsibilities. Back in the day, I used to drink a bottle of scotch a day and I'd smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. 
I haven't had a cigarette in 42 years, and I haven't had a drink in over 40 years, and I don't miss either one of them. <laughs> and I'd like to thank the Teltan leadership, past and present, for their foresight and vision, and the guts to follow a vision and stick to it. To carve a path of a better way of life with meaningful opportunities for our people, namely Chad Day, the president of our central government, Chief Marie Kwaku, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight because she picked up a flu bug. Chief Rick McLean from the Teltan and Telegraph of East Lake. And Norman Day, who is here representing the Board of Directors for the Teltan Nation Development Corporation. As I said, unfortunately, Marie Kwok couldn't attend tonight, but she sent a counselor here, John Knoll, to represent the Iskut Teltans. I'd further like to say thank you to the Teltan Central Government, the Iskut First Nation, the Teltan First Nation, and the Board of Directors for TNDC for the generously supplied the funds for me and my wife, our four children, a son-in-law, two granddaughters, and a couple cousins to attend this event tonight. And I sincerely thank them for that. I'd like to thank my sister Nancy. I have three sisters here tonight. But Nancy raised funds and she brought four young people here tonight to this event from Telegraph Creek. I'm truly honored and humbled by the fact that the Teltan leadership, individual Teltans, my family members and our friends have traveled so far to be here to this event to support me. I want you to understand that all of the Teltans being here is a much bigger deal than you would think, and I'm going to tell you why. On August the 5th, 2018, a forest fire went through our reserve in Telegraph Creek, burning 27 structures in town, 21 Teltan member homes, two nurses' residents, the Teltan Health and Social Service Building, Catholic Church and residents. We also lost 22 structures and many outbuildings and vehicles in the surrounding area. Some damage was done to our store, the community center, and the RCMP buildings. In the first week of October 2018, Minister Jane Philpotts toured the community. Afterwards, in an interview with CBC, she said, the Teltan Nation itself incurred the worst structural damage to any First Nation community in recorded Canadian history. When the town was evacuated, Health Canada said that the residents, especially the children, couldn't move back into town until all the debris from the fire was cleaned up as it posed a health and safety risk. Chief Rick McLean and his staff in the TNDC had all the sites cleaned up and approved by the first week of December so the families could move back home for Christmas. On October the 25th, 2018, I did a presentation at Red Talks here in Toronto and I told the story of taking our nation from 98% unemployment to zero and I talked about the devastating fire. I said then that like the Phoenix, the Teltan Nation will rise again from the ashes, bigger, better, and stronger. Last year, Chief McLean brought in eight modular homes to help alleviate the housing problem, and as we speak, they're building nine new homes with Teltan contractors and Teltan labor. Further to that, the community is looking at adding solar panels to each house to assist with the electrical bills. We're also looking at the feasibility of taking the town of Telegraph Creek off of diesel generation and move to bioenergy. The motto for that effort was called Teltan Strong, and I'm wearing the medallion tonight that my daughter made for me, Cynthia, and it says Teltan Strong with the Teltan outline of our nation, traditional territory. So by the number of Teltans that have traveled from northwestern British Columbia and the Yukon to attend this event, you can see that the strength of our nation. We have come out of this mess bigger, better, and stronger. And I'd like to thank a few prospecting partners 
who taught me so much about prospecting, about how to survive in the bush, like my uncles, Ed and Herman Asp, Freddie Hasselberg, mining guys like Gordon Guthrie, Steve McAlpine, Rick Van Nuenhaas. They all contributed to my journey in the mining industry. And I'd like to say thank you to my business partner, Sonia Moladecki, for suggesting that I be inducted into the Canadian Mine Hall of Fame and for gathering support for the idea. And I would certainly like to thank PDAC for nominating me. Sue Craig is a very special person to me. And I can't thank her enough for the tireless effort collecting support letters for my nomination for getting the Lower Creek Mining Corporation to sponsor a table for some of my family and friends here tonight. And last but not least, I'd like to thank the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame Board of Directors and their Chair, John Baird, for selecting me to be inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Many times people have said to me, you won many awards, had a distinguished career, traveled the world, worked on many different projects. What accomplishments are you the most proud of? Well, other than my family, which includes my brothers and sisters, and like I said, I have three sisters here tonight, I'm most proud of the fact that I helped take our nation, the Teltans, from abject poverty to affluence and to help break the cycle of welfare culture in the Teltan nation forever. When I started the TNDC in 1985, we had 98% unemployment in the winter and 65% unemployment in the summer on our reserves. 80% of our members were on welfare. We had a serious alcohol and drug problem, a high suicide rate, and very low education standards. By 2006, we had zero unemployment in the summer and 5% in the winter, and our suicide rate dropped to zero, and we had very few people on welfare. I had... <clears throat> Last year, we graduated 46 students from grade 12 and six or seven more from colleges and universities. And in May, we graduated our first mining engineer. And I know we have at least... <laughs> we have at least 12 to 15 people enrolled enroll right now in accredited apprentice programs. When we first started negotiating with the mining companies, we already had the Teltan Resource Development Policy in place. But as significant as that policy was, it was the fact that we wanted our people developed along with our resources that made all the difference to our nation's success. When we were negotiating our first Teltan participation agreement with the owners of the Golden Bear Mine, one of the reps said, we think that you Teltans are being unreasonable. Pat Zertza was then band manager for the ISCO Teltans and he said, you the resource developers are taking away our way of life. We only ask that you replace it with something equitable. I don't think that's being unreasonable. At our annual assembly last July, a member said, I'm not happy with the mining agreements that we have since all we get is a few jobs. So I looked into that fact. In Red Crest Mine alone at the time, we have 156 employed workers. And that doesn't include the people who work for the Teltan Nation Development Corporation or other contractors for the Teltans. Those workers make an average of 80 to $120,000 a year. And if you do the math, that means we get 15 to $16 million a year right just from the Red Chris mine. And that's not chicken feet. And that's just one project. We figured it out now that today, all the mining and exploration projects in our territory together are contributing about $30 million in wages and contracts annually to Teltan members. <laughs> what really brought this home to me was last November, three young Teltan girls, 20, 21, 22, left Red Chris, flew to Vancouver, then on to Indonesia and Thailand. They send photos back every day, and after a 10-day vacation was up, they came back for the next two-week turnaround in Red Chris. They must have had a great time because one girl said, I have to come back to work to rest up from my holiday. 
So why is this significant? Well, it's because if this was 1985, those same girls would have probably been walking around the reserve, dragging two or three kids behind them, waiting for their next welfare check. Instead, they are now living and planning their future on their own terms. In October 2019, my great-nephew Lando Ball, and his mother is here tonight, by the way, competed in the World Under-12 Martial Arts Competition in Austria. He took the bronze medal. The U.S. competitor defeated him by one point, and he then was in turn beaten by the Russian by one point. So only two points separated gold from the bronze. But further to that, Chief Rick McLean's nephew will be going to Ireland in March to compete in the under-16-year-old world weightlifting competition. This is what made all the hard work worth it. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank our current leadership for carrying on the work that we started, and I'd like to thank the mining industry for being a catalyst which helped move our nation from abject poverty to affluence. And for that, I hold my hands up to you. I do. And I would like to thank you once again for joining us in the Northern Miner podcast. I hope you enjoyed that speech by P. Jerry Asp and the presentation. I think it's just such a great story to hear. You know, it seems like the media is always trying to tear things apart sometimes. It's nice when the media can put things together. And here we have a great example of that. Not just about the news, we're about the history, we're about the culture of mining over here at the Northern Miner. So please leave us a review, leave us a comment, and feel free to share it with your friends. And we'll see you next week. Bye.